How are you doing? Are you well? You look good? Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. I'm excited to be with you here this morning, especially in this context, as we continue our current sermon series through the book of Acts, entitled Empowered for Jesus' Mission. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and grab it, open it up to Acts chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one, and we have some Bibles on the table right over there with the communion cups. Feel free to get up and grab one at any time. In fact, it's our gift to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as always, you can follow along on the screen behind me. These past few months, as we've studied the book of Acts, we've been given front row seats to God building a people for himself called the church. And we've seen that in the church from the get-go, from the start, has been under attack, attack after attack. And we've been encouraged by these early Christians' resolve to grow in their faith and their commitment to live on mission, even in the midst of persecution. And this morning, we're going to see, again, another attack. But this time, the attack is not from some outside group, but it's from within. And I believe that it's here in Acts chapter 15 that we see what could possibly be one of the most important chapters in this book, and possibly even one of the most important events that took place in church history. You see, considering all the persecution that's happened up to this point in Acts chapter 15, by far, the most dangerous attack up to this point takes place right here, Acts chapter 15. So let's take a look. Would you join me in standing and reading of God's word? Acts chapter 15, we're going to read all 21 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And then the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I'll rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, 
sexual immorality, and from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, there's a ton happening in our text. I mean, obviously, we just read 21 verses. You see, the, the church here encounters a problem that had they not handled, it could have split the church. There could have been some substantial issues. And as I prepared for this, this talk this morning and studied this text, it came uh, aware to me that I became aware that many preachers, they actually skip over this text because it's, it's about a theological debate. And well, let's be honest, for most of us, that does not sound exciting. Um, however, here at Mission Church, we preach throughout the whole council of Scripture. We do not skip because we believe that every word in this book is God's word, and it's important. And so my goal this morning is to help make sense of this theological debate, both practically and relationally, especially regarding two questions. Question number one, how can we be saved? What must we do? What plan, what procedure must one follow in order to be reconciled to God? So question one, how are we saved? Question number two, what do we do when we are faced with conflict, especially within the church? How do we respond to disagreements in a way that honor one another, that promote unity within the church, and glorifies God? So those are the two questions that I'm going to attempt to help us answer through this text. But before we answer these questions and before we dive into our text, would you join me in prayer? God, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we ask God that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that those areas in our hearts that are callous, that you would soften them so that we can have a greater understanding of who you are, how awesome and mighty you are, and also that we would see our need for you, Jesus, that in and of ourselves that we are, we are nothing. In fact, we're deserving of wrath outside of your life, death, and resurrection, and our faith in what you've accomplished on our behalf. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would work in here this morning. So the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, as your, as your word says, that it, it would be pleasing to you and beautiful in your sight. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We love you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever disagreed with somebody? Easy question, right? I might, have, I might as well ask you, have you ever taken a breath? Of course you have. We've all disagreed. Let's be honest. Whether we like it or not, conflict, disagreement, arguments, they're a normal part of life. They always have been. So let's give this a shot, and this will require some participation, so don't be shy. Which do you prefer? In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A? In-N-Out takes it by a landslide. <laughs> McDonald's or Burger King? Yep. Now, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Well, that one, there's some division on that one. We're not united on the pineapple one. Ford or Chevrolet? How do you put the toilet paper roll on, right? This is a source of a debate in most households. Now, these are silly examples. They're silly. But it proves my point that even in the smallest, most unimportant detail, people will disagree on something, especially pineapple on pizza. Give us enough time, and we will think differently than the person sitting next to us. There's a, a guy named Walter Martin, and he says it like this. If you can find two people that think exactly alike on everything, one of them is not thinking. You see, wherever there's a will, there is a won't. And let's be honest, it's not that hard, especially in our cultural and political climate. You can't roll out of bed or leave the front door without experiencing conflict. Should I wear a mask? Should I not? Should I get a vaccine? Should I not? 
Republican or Democrat, homeschool or public school. We can list the hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of potential points of conflict in our world today. And the truth is, unfortunately, we have allowed these things to divide us. And not just in our culture, in our time and space, but even within the church. And yes, it's true, whether you're a Christian or not, these things, there are things in which we will disagree on. But understand this, to be unified with another believer does not mean that you will agree with them on every subject. Did you know it's okay to disagree? Unity does not equal uniformity. You see, we're not all going to agree with each other regarding pineapple on pizza. We're not going to agree with each other regarding politics or even vaccines or how to put the toilet paper roll on. But these are not issues that we should divide over within the church. These are not hills that you and I should die on. These are gray areas, non-gospel issues in which we show compassion to one another, no matter what our opinion may be. These are areas that we should have discussions about, not division. However, we do need to understand that there are hills in which you and I will be called to die on. There are issues that should cause us to argue and potentially divide. Sometimes we are called to do so. We are called to contend for our faith. In fact, Jude, in his book, one chapter in verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. The word contend here possesses the idea of an athlete who in an effort to win finds themselves intensely struggling, competing, even fighting with all their might. It speaks to this idea of an effort expended in a noble cause. You see, in Jude 3, Jude is saying, hey guys, I'm done with pleasantries. He's saying we're at a point now where some action is necessary. It's required even. And he gives us that which we should contend for, that which we should passionately fight for, which is the gospel, the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what demands urgency. This is what should move us. The truth is the church today needs a generation of Christians who know their Bibles and who will passionately defend the gospel. You see, if someone denies the gospel or attempts to pollute or dilute the gospel, we're not supposed to overlook that for the sake of unity. But rather, the loving thing to do, and what we're instructed to do by Jude here, is to contend, to speak the truth in love, even if speaking the truth is hard. Or even if speaking the truth makes you unpopular, or even makes you seem rigid. We are at all times to defend the truth of God's word. Simply put, we should always go to battle when the gospel is at stake. And this is what takes place in our text in Acts chapter 15. A disagreement breaks out centered on that which is of the most important. How is one saved? How is one accepted by God and reconciled to God? This is the dispute in the chapter. And unfortunately, this is still a debate in the church today. Because people, we have a hard time with the finished work of Christ and and believing in the free gift of grace, surely there must be something I must do to earn God's forgiveness, to earn God's love. Surely there must be something I must do to maintain God's love for me or to increase God's love for me. 
Last week, if you were here, we saw in Acts chapter 14, the entire church together, and they are worshiping God and praising God and proclaiming all that God had done and opening the door of faith for the Gentiles. You see, salvation at this point is no longer for just the Jewish people, but for all people. That's what Gentile means. It's the word ethnos, which means all people, all ethnicities, all nations. And well, there are some folks who took issue, not necessarily with these outsiders being given the gift of salvation. They didn't have issue with that necessarily, but it was how they received this gift. Was it salvation by grace through faith alone, or was it faith plus something else? Well, let's take a look back to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. What's happening here is not a debate over the health of baby boys, whether it's healthier to circumcise or not. That's not the debate here. See, circumcision was required by the Mosaic law for all of Abraham's descendants as a sign of the covenant promise that God had made with them. So these men... They did not necessarily deny salvation by grace per se. They simply said that salvation comes by grace plus, specifically grace plus circumcision, grace plus the law. Essentially, they felt that to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. They're telling these new converts that your faith in Jesus is not enough. Your faith is not sufficient for salvation. These were the kind of wet blanket Christians who can listen to the amazing, beautiful testimony of a new Christian and say, well, that's great, buddy, but I still see this area in your life in which doesn't measure up, and well, you still have some work to do. You see, these guys, they didn't know the joy of pure grace. They didn't know the beauty of God's divine favor, which is freely given. The issue here can be clarified by a series of questions, which are, is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when he or she believes in Jesus? Or are we saved partly through the grace of God and partly through our own works and religious performance? See, the truth of the gospel and the future of the church is at stake right away in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And we're given front row seats to a group of people that are attempting to dilute the gospel. And understand, this wasn't a one-time instruction. This wasn't like a mistake that this guy made in one sermon, but rather this was an ongoing teaching. You see, the, the verb in the original language speaks to an ongoing, continuous thing. The, the, this was an instruction that was taking place over and over again. They were committed to, they were continually teaching a false gospel of grace plus the law. That in order to be saved, you must keep the Mosaic law. And well, Paul and Barnabas, they were upset to say the least. They were ready to fight. And we will see that's because the power of the gospel message is in its purity. And when it gets diluted, it changes everything. I'll say that again. The power of the gospel message is in its purity. And when it is diluted, it changes everything. See, the truth is, many of those in the church who have left the church or who have lost their faith or or those that we have seen, or, or friends that we know, or family members that have experienced a deconstruction of their faith, is a result of being taught and believing in a gospel that's been diluted or polluted. And for some of us, maybe we've grown up in the church, or maybe you've heard the, the gospel of Jesus for many years throughout your life, but if, 
Maybe if you're honest, you might say, John, I don't feel the power of the gospel message in my life. And that's possibly because the gospel message you've heard and believed in may have quite possibly been diluted. Someone taught you things that, that you still carry. Things like Jesus came to save you, but that's not enough. There's still things that you must do. And some of us have continued to feel as though we're not enough, that I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure that he likes me back. And I'm not so sure that I can live this life he's called me to live. And we struggle with the thought that God will never accept us or that God would even look upon us with a smile. We hear about how freeing the grace of God is and we even see it take place in other people's lives. But we haven't experienced it for ourselves because quite possibly we haven't fully understood the purity and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was my story for many years, much of my life. I grew up in the church and well, I heard a diluted and polluted gospel. I was taught that it was faith plus spiritual gifts, faith plus speaking in tongues, faith plus living a perfect life. And as you can imagine, this negatively impacted my understanding of God, negatively impacted my understanding of the gospel, and even the mission to that which God had called me to. But by God's grace in my early 20s, I, I started to understand more clearly that salvation was by grace alone. And all those feelings that I felt, those misunderstandings I defended, the feelings of guilt and shame and the feelings of inadequacy, the misplaced energy spent on social justices over evangelism. The truth is, all this held me back from intimacy with God and unity with His church. But that began to dissipate as soon as I was given a correct understanding of the gospel of grace. And this is why Paul and Barney are so upset here. Look back at verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Understand, this was not a polite and civil discussion, but rather, this was a passionate argument. Like most passionate arguments, it was filled with raised voices and red faces. And these men, no doubt, arguing with Paul and Barney that they had the support of the church leadership in Jerusalem. And Paul, Barnabas, you guys don't have that. So we're right and you're wrong. And the result was division. And the only solution was for Paul and Barney to go over to Jerusalem and talk to these church leaders. And that's exactly what they do. And when they get there, they find a bunch of leaders in the church who have been entrenched in. They had been well established in the false gospel of grace plus the law that was being proclaimed. Continue in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and some other others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. There they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. But when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Man, they had a warm welcome, but that warm welcome didn't last very long, did it? As soon as they began sharing about all that God had done, as soon as they began sharing about the Gentiles who had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, well, here we go again. These wet blankets said, we just want to let you know, those folks that you think are saved, they're not because they first have to keep the law. You still have work to do, guys. Now, in all fairness, these Jewish critics, they did raise a natural question. Their argument makes sense. You see, the first Christians were in fact 
Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The old covenant people were what? Jewish. These, the Jews had always demanded that if a Gentile wished to convert to Judaism, that they would first have to be circumcised and follow the law. So as you can imagine, this was probably confusing for them. Difficult even. What's with the sudden change? We've always required this. You see, they were missing the importance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It would be similar to you investing three hours of your life in a, in a, in a movie. It contains an intense dialogue, confusing structure, a suspenseful plot, and a friend of yours shows up with five minutes left of the movie, and, and they say, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. And they go to lead a forum and discuss why this is the worst movie they've ever seen. They don't know anything about the character development. They don't know anything about the intricate writing, the, the set, the, uh, the stage for the plot twist. He, he basically shows up when the credits roll and says, I'm an expert now. That would be frustrating. On one hand, this is how these Jewish Christians felt. And on the other hand, due to the Jewish rituals to which they still adhered to, there were practical and communal implications that could impact the unity of the church. You see, how could the Jewish Christians sit and eat a meal with the Gentile Christians? They don't follow the same ritual laws. Their eating habits could defile one another and make them unclean. This was a big deal. So much so that this reality, like I said, could have split the church. You would have had a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And so these Pharisees, they were ready to debate. They came ready to argue. They came ready to fight against a grace-based and circumcision-free gospel. And unfortunately, the truth is, this is a dispute we are still having. This idea of that salvation is by grace alone. And it may not be around circumcision, at least I hope not. But many of us, whether we know it or not, are still holding fast to a Jesus plus something gospel. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus speaking in tongues or, or spiritual gifts. Jesus plus voting Republican. Jesus plus social justice. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus giving money. You can go on and on and on, but the point of this is if we add anything to the gospel, we will lose the gospel. If we add anything to the gospel, we lose its purity. We dilute it. Now, I'm not the best at math. That's why I'm a pastor and why I'm not in charge of the operations of the church. I may not know when the two trains are coming into the station, but I do know this. The gospel math is simple. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The Bible gives us an answer to the equation. And the answer is that the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is totally sufficient. And by grace through faith in Jesus' work, you are saved. We meditated upon this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, which says, For you are saved by what? Grace through what? Faith. Did you do it? No, it's not of yourself. It's, it's what? God's gift. In Galatians 2.16, says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. See, salvation by grace alone is what differentiates Christianity from every other world religion. Every other religion in the world is built upon our performance, what you and I must do to work our way up to God. But God is clear in His Word that no one can be saved by their performance. It doesn't matter how good you are, how awesome you think you may be, 
how religious you are. God has always simply desired our faith in Him. There's nothing else we can do to earn God's favor. His love, His forgiveness. But we can simply trust in Jesus. Because He's the one who paid it all. He lived a perfect life. He died paying the payment of death that you and I deserve to pay. Fully satisfying God's just demand. And now all who turn from their sin, everyone, all people, all ethnos, all people who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are saved. Unfortunately, this good news of the saving exclusivity of Jesus by the grace of Jesus will always be disputed because the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness, not faith-based righteousness. Let's continue in our text. Verse 6. Doing okay? Okay. The apostle and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Peter's calling these folks out on their partiality. He's essentially saying, I know that these Gentile believers look different, sound different, they have different customs and even different morals. And he's saying, stop it. Who are you to determine who God saves? Who are you apart from Christ? For at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. Jesus saved you, and without Him, you are deserving of His wrath, just like anyone else who does not trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Stop pointing fingers at those who are lost. You're no better than them, as though you have done something to make yourself good, as though you have done something to make yourself pleasing and appealing to God. No, it was God who intervened. It was God who, by His grace, gave you the gift of faith. We can't muster up faith on our own. It's a gift that God gives. See, the only boundary marker between alienation from God and salvation in Him is faith. Peter says, look back at verse 8 and 9, in the same way that the Jews were saved, God cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. Peter's speaking about God purifying our morally sick, hearts. You see, the heart of man's sin problem is the problem of his heart. God supernaturally purified the sinful hearts of both the Jews and Gentiles alike. Peter could not have put it more plainly. The cleansing was not was by faith, not by works. The cleansing was by faith, not by works. Church, this is the only way anyone can be accepted by God. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. We must not lose focus of this. This should be in the forefront of our mission, of our lives, of everything that we do. Because if we do, if we lose focus of this, we will inevitably replace a focus on inward transformation with an emphasis on outward conformity. And when that happens, a whole bunch of things become laws, which we then use to determine whether or not somebody is saved. In Acts 15, it was circumcision. Today, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's how someone dresses or talks, whether they have tattoos or not, whatever the political party.
party they're affiliated with. But I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, which says, For both circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Salvation is by grace alone. It has nothing to do with the circumcision of your flesh, but of the circumcision of your heart. There's no additional requirements. And with this, Peter silenced the crowd, and he sets the stage for his boys Paul and Barney and James. Look at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent. Barnabas and Paul described all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responds, and understand, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is also the author of the book of James, and he's a guy who did not believe that his brother was the son of God until he saw him resurrected. And now James is known as the, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And so he gets up, he hears Peter, he hears Paul and Barney, and he gets up to conclude this discussion. And he says, listen to me. Simon has recorded how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. If you remember, this was the conversation, interaction between Cornelius and Peter in the earlier chapters. And the words of the prophets agree with this. And, and he go, James now goes to a quote from Amos. He says, after these things, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I'll rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles to turn to God. In other words, God's plan has always been to restore us and return us back to Him. God is creating a people for Himself, a people that consists of everyone, all nations, all people. James's summary of what Peter said and Paul said and Barney said is this. His summary is this. Church, let's not make it difficult for people to turn to God and let's uphold the gospel of grace while also preserving unity within the church. See, God has already done the difficult work. The work that you and I can never do ourselves. And by grace, through faith in Christ and His work, we have not only been reconciled to God, but also to each other as brothers and sisters. We are invited into a community that outside of, of Jesus, we would not be hanging out. And there's beauty in this. And the watching world sees this unity and the gospel is proclaimed in amazing ways. Think about this for a moment. It's an application, and we'll be done, and we can go eat some snow cones out there. <laughs> we prepaid for a hundred of them, so get some snow cones. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. What might we be doing that would make it difficult for people to hear and receive the gospel, the message of the gospel? What might you and I be doing both individually and collectively as the church, that make it difficult for someone to hear the message of the gospel. There's potentially multiple obstacles that we could talk about, both personally and collectively. There's probably several. But I want to close by simply pointing out two. Two potential obstacles. Obstacle number one. Now hang with me. Some of us are making it difficult for people to hear the gospel because most people don't have anybody to hear the message of the gospel from. Many of us are not being faithful to proclaim the gospel. And church, that's an obstacle. Pastors here at Mission Church extended a challenge. 
that you would find one person in your life, whether at work or in your neighborhood or at school, wherever you may be during the week, one person that does not know Jesus, that you would begin praying for them and that you would begin intentionally sharing the gospel with them. And we promised you that um, as you turn those names into us through the link that we shared with you, that we would pray every week for you by name as you are praying for them and sharing the gospel with them. Now, here's the obstacle. Only five people that we know of in the church have participated in this challenge. Church, there are people in your life that don't know Jesus, and they have no access to gospel conversations because you're the one who's supposed to be initiating that gospel conversation. And I want to emphasize this, gospel conversation, telling people about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Tell me, does your neighbor know more about how you feel about the political climate than he does your relationship and faith in Jesus? How will people know the saving grace of God if the church is not being obedient to God's command to tell people about Jesus and to make disciples? It's all of our job. Mission Church, let's repent of our disobedience. Let's do everything we can to stop building obstacles that keep people from the grace of God. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, when we gather in house church on Tuesday nights, even when we go in the parking lot and party on a day like today, And when we live on mission throughout the week, let's be a church that welcomes everyone to trust in Jesus alone and to join in this community of faith we call Mission Church. Obstacle number two. This is when the church is divided by non-gospel issues. When we are divided by preferences, politics, and practices, and not united in the purpose, then the gospel of grace is not being defended and displayed. I'm going to say that again because that was a lot of words. When we are divided by preferences, politics, and practices, and not united in purpose, then the gospel of grace is not being defended and displayed. John Newton says this about Paul's commitment in Scripture to defend the gospel. He says, Paul was a reed in non-essentials and an iron pillar in the essentials. Paul was a reed in non-gospel issues and an iron pillar in the gospel. Church, let's love one another as we live united around the truths of the gospel, defending the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, let's be an iron pillar on the gospel and let's be compassionate to one another considering or in regarding everything else. And this is for the good of the church, for the advancement of the gospel in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Friends, listen, God wants to know you. He doesn't need us. He does want a relationship. And he made a way for this to be possible. He came to earth, paid the penalty for our sin. And He wants to come into your life, forgive you of your sin, and make you a new person. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, it's it's done. Jesus has already accomplished. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, and His work, His life, His death, and resurrection, you can be saved. Paul writes in Romans 10 that all who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. You see, the gospel is not go change and then come. But come to God and He will change you through the power of His Holy Spirit in you. So if you're here this morning and you're discouraged because you're trying hard to be good, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Just come. He'll start cleaning you up as soon as you confess that He is Lord and that He is your Savior. Let's pray. God, we love You and we thank You for Your your Word. 
thank you for your grace and your love that you have showed to us so clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that there's nothing that we must do to earn that, but rather you've given to us this grace freely, and that we can stand before you, righteous and holy, just God, and you don't see our mess, but rather we can stand hidden in Christ, and you see his perfect life and his righteousness that's been gifted to us, and we thank you for that. And we thank you now that after we're saved, that we don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just work really hard because, God, you've given us the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. You've given to us, and you are changing our desires, and you are putting in us the fruits of the Spirit, and, and you're growing us into a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and leads others to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, and I pray, Lord, that you give us opportunities this week to be faithful, to proclaim that good news to the world around us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.